We want to thank you for tuning in to the Indian Run Christian Church podcast with Pastor Terry Bailey. This podcast can be found on iTunes by searching for Terry Bailey Ministries. Right now, let's get to Pastor Terry's insightful message. All right, before I get started, I would like to say uh, just a word about the, the trip that I just got back from uh, from Israel. Uh, for those of you who are in my Sunday school class, you got to see all the pictures and touch the little doodads I brought with me. If you want to see or touch any of that stuff, uh, I guess track me down after church. I'll just go back over to my Sunday school room and I can show you some stuff. But I, I don't want to spend my, my sermon time on that this morning. But I do want to uh, just encourage you to keep uh, Dad and specifically the group he went with, ABR, Associates for Biblical Research, in your in your prayers. Um, I think that the question has been asked why this was a thing that Dad uh, felt so passionately about he wanted to go uh, and, and be a part of it. And I'll just tell you that the place that we were digging, Tel Shiloh, they call it. Tel just means up on the hill. Shiloh is how you're supposed to pronounce Shiloh. But since I'm from Stark County, I'll say Shiloh from now on. But it means the hill where Shiloh is. Um, it's supposed to, who knows, by the way, who wasn't here in the first service, who knows why Shiloh is important in the Old Testament? Anybody? where the tabernacle was. Yeah, before they built the temple, when they were setting up a tent and the the Ark of the Covenant and the priestly service and the sacrifice, all of that was in Shiloh. Specifically in the Old Testament, we're told it's the place where God first made his covenant name known at Shiloh. Um, Like everything with the Old Testament, there are just hundreds of archaeologists and scholars and historians who will look at the biblical record of the tabernacle and say things like, oh, it couldn't have been there at 1400 B.C. because the Israelites didn't even show up in the Holy Land for hundreds of years after that. And even if they did, they didn't have a priestly system because Yahweh was just a copy of an older Canaanite god and this, that, and the other thing. They they say these things specifically because they have an anti-biblical bias, Right? Um, They want to disprove the Bible, prove that things that the Bible says are specifically false. Well, this group, ABR, uh, is part of the cure for that problem. Um, They're made up of Bible believers, of preachers and archaeologists who believe that what the Bible says is true and are set out to prove that what the Bible says is true. So Shiloh specifically is important because the Bible tells us uh, that the tabernacle was there and it gives us the dimensions of the building and it tells us what period in history it was supposed to have been there. So if they dig it up and it's there and it matches the biblical record, basically you can say to all of the atheist scholars, you know, nee, 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 nee. <laughs> right? Right, it's, it's apologetics. It's proclaiming to the world that God's word is true. It's really important work. The stakes could not be higher. Um, and, and having met and worked with several of the people on their staff, I will tell you that they're a great organization um, and their heart is in the right place and they deserve your prayers. And if you want to start saving your pennies now, they will dig again next summer and everybody ought to think about going. Um, so there's that about Israel. If you want more of that and see pictures and things, come and see me. I'll disappear into that room after church and I can show you some stuff if you would like. Now, on to the sermon part. I want to tell you before I begin that I approach this message in particular with a little bit of, I think the word is trepidation. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is, 
I'm going to try and tell you something today that seems almost to contradict what the Bible clearly teaches, and I don't want to be in contradiction to the Word of God. Right? I don't think that's a good place to be. So I try to be very careful with what I'm going to say to make sure that what I'm telling you is, is true. Um, and I, I also will tell you that even this morning as I was getting ready and brushing my teeth and all of these things, I kept having more thoughts, right? And come, coming up with a different way of looking at it and thinking, man, I just, I want to get this right and I want to share it with you because I think it's an important message. Um, but I will tell you that if you disagree with my conclusions, you might be right, Right? So, so take what I'm going to tell you with a grain of salt, have the spirit of the Bereans, as the New Testament tells us, and do your own research, right? But I will try to tell you the truth as best as I can, and I think that it will take us someplace useful. Now, with all of that said, let me ask you the first of three questions I'm going to ask this morning. How do you feel about spiders? That might not be what you were expecting, but that's the question. Spiders. Any fans? Anybody here just love spiders? Think they're neat to look at? Um, I see a couple people pointing fingers. Uh, is that true? <laughs> You're a spider fan? Yeah. No, okay, so that's a sarcastic point. I see. Uh, spiders are gross. There are some classics uh, that are my favorites. For anybody who doesn't know, uh, I used to work for Terminix, so I have seen more of spiders than most people. Um, and there are some, even in our area, that are neat. How many of you have seen the big orange-colored orb weavers? Oh, yeah. They got that the, the bud on them that's like this big. And you see it and go, Ugh. There are, of course, the classics, the Black Widow, the Brown Recluse, all of these kinds of things. I know a few years ago, Dad paid a lot of attention to one called the camel spider. How many of you remember Dad doing that? If you don't remember it, get out your, your space phone and Google it right now, uh, camel spider, because it will live in your nightmares from this point on. One of my favorites is a little green spider called a clown spider. As if clowns and spiders were not independently awful enough, we needed to marry the two of them. Um, its body is green, but it, it's an orb weaver too, so it has the big butt just like the orange ones that we see around here, except that it's, it's white and it looks like it has the face of a clown on it. So, there you go. Your day has been edified by the knowledge that such a horrible creature exists. Spiders are objectively icky. Icky, right? Um, I'm not like Caleb. How many of you have seen Caleb react to spiders? We have a few. Caleb is generally a pretty manly guy. All of that goes out the window the minute something with eight legs wanders onto the scene. Up on the counter, squeaking like a little girl. Ooh, kill it, kill it! That's not me. But I don't like them. I don't like them. They're gross. And I think that that attitude is rooted in a deep childhood trauma that I want to unload on you this morning. So I was in the sixth grade. Ms. Ruth was my science teacher. And we were uh, putting together a bug collection for our science class. Did anybody build a bug collection for their science class at some point? I'm the only one. Oh, no, we got a couple. Okay, good. Yeah, all right, yeah. Raise your hands. Okay, good. Uh, I had uh, the bottom part of an egg carton turned upside down, and all my little treasures were pinned on there with sewing needles, you know. 
uh, I guess not needles, but pins, the ones with the little balls on top. Little uh, ladybug and a moth and a centipede. And we had taken a trip to my grandma and grandpa's in Indiana. And I wanted, while I was there, to finish off my collection with the biggest, nastiest spider that I could find. Um, what I found was a grass spider, a wolf spider, you know, those brown, hairy, gross things that run all over the place. And it was pretty big uh, for the kind of spider that it was. Um, and I captured it in a baby food jar about half full of, of uh, rubbing alcohol, right? Because that's how I was killing the bugs. You capture them in there and they can't breathe it and they die. Well, it was in that jar for about an hour and then I took it out. And you guys know what happens when a spider dies, right? Its legs are out and then it does this number, Right. So you turn it upside down, and you put the pin through its back onto the back of the egg carton. So far, so good. Then we got in the car, and we were driving home from Indiana when it happened. That spider was not dead. Now, you got to picture it, right? Egg carton, spider, huge needle right through the middle of it. And we're driving along, this thing is on my lap, I'm telling everybody about my bugs, when all of a sudden... And it gets its legs underneath it, and it starts pulling that pin up out of the styrofoam. Now, I don't know what that sounds like in your head, but in the soundtrack of my own mind, it sounds like that the, the Psycho movie, right? Horrible, monstrous spider, the biggest one I could find, pulling a needle up out of the styrofoam of the egg crate. And i that's the last thing I remember of that incident, is that moment when it's pulling that pin up. What I'm told happened is that I rolled the window down and chucked my whole project... <laughs> out the window on the side of the highway and had to start over again when I got home. I'd do it again. I didn't need it that bad. Spiders are nasty. Nasty. Which brings me to the first big thing I want to talk to you about this morning. Here's the second question. If I were to ask you, What is the most famous Christian sermon outside the Bible? How many of you would be able to answer? Anybody? I ask it that way because if you Google, so anybody who got their phone out to look up camel spiders, just type in most famous sermon. You won't even get a list. You will get several pages all talking about the same sermon. It was a sermon preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards, July 8th, 1741. And I'll tell you the title of it and some of you will go, oh yeah, yeah, I knew that. Right? The title of it is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody familiar with that at all? But I said it wrong. Uh, you have to pronounce it like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? It's one of those hellfire and brimstone uh, sermons. And it starts off with Jonathan Edwards spending a lot of time building up this point that we are held in the hand of God held out over the fires of hell. And the only thing keeping us from being dropped into those fires is the merest whim of God. Right? Like we're walking along on solid ground, but it turns out it's thin ice. Like any moment we're a breath away from everything being yanked out from underneath us because we're just 
held out over the fire. And he spends a long time on that point. And then point two of the sermon is that when God looks at us held in his hand like that, because there's sin in our lives and sin in our hearts and sin on our hands, that we have become loathsome, ugly, icky to God. As though what he was holding in his hand is not his child made in his image, but a nasty, hairy, toothy spider. Right? This is the sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it goes on from there to build up how unpleasant the experience of hell is and how hot fire is. How much you don't want to go there. And of course, the point at the end of it is that time is running out. Right? You're running out of time. God is running out of patience. Here you are, a nasty spider in the hand of God out over the fires of hell, and you'd better get right with God before. Right? Imagine. Imagine one of those spiders that you've seen running around. One of those orb weavers or maybe one of those big yellow and black garden spiders that make the zigzaggies, right? Got one in your hand. How quickly would you want it out of your hand? I don't think that there is a measurement of time small enough. Right? Nanoseconds, what's littler than that? On it. Right? That's the sermon, and it's a powerful message. And it's one that has brought thousands of people to repent of their sins and turn to God. Um, and it's been repeated. You can read it online. There, there are copies of the text of the sermon all over the place, and it's worth a look through. But here's what I want to tell you. I think that Jonathan Edwards was wrong. I think that he misses the point, and I think that he misses it in a really important Way. You see, there's this idea that when we sin, we become loathsome to God, that God hates sinners. And that when God is fed up with our bad behavior, He will stomp on us like a nasty spider. How can God be love and hate sinners? God wants us all to go to heaven. How could God hate sinners? But here's what I want to tell you to start off with is that there are a lot of Bible verses that say, in English at least, very clearly that God hates sinners. I'm going to give you a list um, of verses. And you can write these down if you're fast. Or if you want the list, you can see me later and I will give them to you. Uh, But there's a handful of these that say things like God hates sinners, God hates workers of iniquity, God hates those who love violence. So here's the list. You ready? Leviticus 20.23, Leviticus 26.30, Deuteronomy 32.29, Psalm 5.5, Psalm 10.3, Psalm 11.5, Psalm 53.5, Psalm 73.20. Psalm 78:59, Psalm 106:40, Proverbs 22:14, Lamentations 2:6, Hosea 9:15, Zechariah 11:8, Malachi 1:3, and then jump to the New Testament where God is talking about Jacob and Esau, and He says, "Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated because of his sin." Romans 9:13. That's a lot of Bible verses. <laughs> It's a lot of places you could point to and say, see, look, God hates sinners. He said so. 
But as I've looked at those, I've noticed a couple of things. The first is that in about half of those cases, if you were reading carefully, I think that you would be able to say that what it tells us is that God hates the actions of those people. Right? That's a thing we're comfortable with. Hate the sinner, but or, that's wrong. Hate the sin, love the sinner, right? That's what Gandhi said. That's not from your Bibles, by the way, anyone who might have thought it was. Uh, but I think that it's a fairly biblical principle for us. But that only accounts for about half of those verses. In the other ones, it is God specifically saying, I hate this person, right? And the word that they use there is a personal word, right? It's not like a class of people, it's a person, But I want to look at that word real quick, and I need to pause here just long enough to tell you that I am not a Hebrew scholar. Just in case you were confused on that point, I cannot speak Hebrew, I cannot read Hebrew, I know like three words, so I have to rely on what other people have written. Uh, But I I, I think that I have come to understand this particular word uh, as well as I can. It's the word in Hebrew, it's sawne. Uh, it's, it's spelled S-A-N-E, like sane, uh, but it's pronounced sawne, like a hand saw and the noise that a horse makes, sawne. Um, and it's not exactly the same thing we think of when we think of hate in English. Think about it for a second. If I were to ask you, how would you describe what hate is? You don't have to answer. I just want you to have an answer in your head. Um, The opposite of love, maybe. A strong feeling of dislike, as Webster's Dictionary puts it. Um, It's an emotional state attached to a negative perception. Does that make sense? I have a feeling that is negative about this thing. And it's, it's not just dislike or disgust. It's stronger than that, so it's hate. Right? That makes sense? That's not what Sane is about. Um, it can be interpreted a couple of different ways, even though it's almost universally translated as hate in your Bibles in English. Um, it, can, it can mean to feel disgusted about something, something that's so bad that you just feel like, Bleh, I don't like it. It can also mean to set yourself up in opposition to something, like a, 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 to make something your enemy, an opponent on the battlefield, the guy you're playing in chess, something that you're actively working against. I think that that version of the word fits in very nicely with much of what is said in the Bible about God hating sinners, that God is, a better way to read that, I think, would be that God is actively opposed to evildoers, to those who love violence, that God is working against sinners. But to get a real picture of this this word that is used and the way that it's used, you have to back up a step further. Because Hebrew is not a language that was built the same way that English is built, uh, the oldest version of the Hebrew language isn't an alphabetical language, right? It's not spelled out with letters. It's pictographs. So these words, in the original form... Uh, were pictures that somebody drew to express an idea. And then when the language evolved to the point where they had an alphabet, they took these picture words and they would write them out in letters, saw and a. Uh, it, it, those words that get translated from pictures into spelling are called root words. And the entire Hebrew language is built on this collection of root words that come from these 
pictures. Sane is a root word, and the picture that's associated with this word is a thorn and a seed. So the thorn seed. So all of Russ's grandkids. I thought it was funny. Anyway. The thorn seed, right? And there's this image from these agrarian shepherds and goat herds with this idea of thorns that gets transmitted along with this word sawne. If you were raising sheep or goats out in the wilderness, it was common practice to build a fence out of thorns, right, to protect your flock. And so you have this idea of the thorns being a thing that you encounter, it causes you pain, and turns you away. That's the picture, the pictograph of sane, this word that gets translated into hate almost every time it shows up, especially throughout the Old Testament, sane, to be caused pain and be turned away. And now it's interesting to me because there are other Hebrew words that carry an emotional weight with them. Things like anger and grievance and disgust. They have words for those things. Sane is a different word and it carries no like emotional heft with it. It's, it's a fence of thorns that causes you pain and turns you away. And you think about it, it makes a certain amount of sense. If you have sheep inside of this fence of thorns... It means that there's somebody trying to get in, wolves or or lions or thieves or somebody, right? But they encounter the thorns and are turned away. So if you think of God trying to get into your life, your heart, and he encounters this wall of thorns that causes him pain, what would cause God pain? Well, the sin in your life, right? The bad choices you've made, the suffering that you've endured, all of these things build a wall that can separate us from God. He encounters this wall of pain and is turned away. And the same works in reverse. If you want to have a relationship with God, but there's something, this this wall that you've built up of sin between you and God, you encounter that wall and are caused pain and are separated from God. Okay, so... One, a lot of those verses talk about God hating the actions of sinners. Two, the word doesn't necessarily mean hate the way that we think about hate. It can mean to oppose, or it can carry this older idea of being a dividing wall of pain. With that background, let me ask you the question again. Does God hate sinners? I want to I pause just for a second before I move on. Because I've read a lot of things on this. And this is where I come in with that trepidation that I talked about. Because if you just read your Bibles, it sounds a lot like God says he hates sinners. And I don't want to try to paint God into a box where he's not really at. Right? There are a lot of preachers and a lot of teachers who will tell you that the Bible clearly t- teaches that God hates sinners because otherwise he wouldn't punish them. He wouldn't condemn them to torment. And, and I just want to tell you that I believe in the wrath of God. I think that's a hugely biblical concept. I 100% believe that God gets mad that God gets frustrated, that God is disgusted with my decisions and everyone else's decisions when we choose sin. The part that causes me to stop and think 
is this idea that God's punishment comes from God's uncontrollable rage. Does that make sense? This idea that God is sitting up there at heaven and, and, and looking down at Bill and getting madder and madder and madder and madder until his veins stick out and the steam comes out and he just has to reach out and smush them. I don't think that's true. Does God hate sinners? Is he disgusted by them and compelled to squash them? Does he see them as loathsome creatures? I don't think so. I think he hates their sinful actions, and I believe he is actively opposing their wickedness. But I think the Bible reveals something else in the heart of God when it talks about how God feels and interacts and deals with sinners. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Far from wanting to crush those of us who are mired in sin, God is anxious that we should embrace Him. So how do we deal with this wealth of biblical references that tell us that that if we sin, we will be destroyed? If it's not God getting mad until his wrath boils over onto us, right? How how, how do we deal with this idea that if we choose sin over God, that hell does wait for us? Sin doesn't make God hate us, right? We should know that. God showed his love for us in this. Who knows the rest of that verse? While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. In fact, the most popular Bible verse of all time, John 3.16 says, For God so loved who? The world, right? Not saints, not the perfect, not the holy crowd, but the world, the imperfect, broken, sinful world that He sent His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. But how can God love us and send us to hell if we don't repent of our sins? If our sin does not make us loathsome and does not cause God to see us as monsters, but instead He sees us as His children, even when we sin, how can He condemn us? Well, I I think that that answer is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. You look all the way back to the very beginning, the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. They lived in the Garden. There were a lot of things there that made it better than the world that we currently inhabit. Uh, there's, there's kind of a list that we're given in the story of Adam and Eve, right? Uh, m- women and men didn't feel the need to compete with each other. Uh, childbirth was painless. Uh, weeds wouldn't bother your crops at all. Those of you with gardens, that sounds pretty good, right? But none of those things are what made the garden paradise. None of those things are what made the existence of Adam and Eve perfect in the eyes of God. The thing that made the garden paradise was the presence of God. They got to walk with Him, talk with Him, touch Him, ask Him questions, see Him, live in the presence of God. It's the same thing that makes the promise of heaven important. When we think about heaven, we always picture the angels in robes with harps sitting on clouds and eating cream cheese bagels, right? 
at least if you've seen those commercials. We may be getting to a point where those are old enough now that they're not a valid popular reference, but they're the ones that stick in my mind, and I think all that sounds pretty miserable. I don't want to wear a robe. I don't like harp music. And I mean, like, a cream cheese bagel a day would be great, but that doesn't need to be my eternity. What is it about heaven that makes it wonderful? We get to walk with God. We can talk with Him. We can touch Him. We can see Him. We get to live in the presence of God. But you'll notice the moment that sin entered the picture in the story of Adam and Eve, they were driven from the garden and most importantly driven from the presence of God. And the whole rest of human history in many ways is the story of human beings struggling to re-enter the presence of God. Right? We, we, we try it through wisdom and sacrifice and effort and clean living and yoga and philosophy and a million other ways to try and mend what's been broken and enter once more into the presence of God. We are hardwired to be in the presence of God and something deep in our souls cries out for that which is missing. There are a few people throughout the Bible who managed to make their way back into the presence of God after the Garden of Eden. And just real quickly, I want to look at at a couple of those experiences with you. The first is in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the calling of Isaiah. And maybe it's a vision, maybe it's a dream, maybe it's something else, but God summons Isaiah to the throne room in heaven. And when Isaiah is standing there looking at the throne and the angels and the crystal sea and all of this stuff, who knows what he says? It's Isaiah 6, 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Right? When he comes into the presence of God, it is his sin that causes him pain and despair. Ezekiel has a similar experience where he sees the vision of God on his throne and he describes the cherubim and the wheels within wheels and the four faces and the eyeballs on the wings and all of these things. Who knows how he reacted to the presence of God. It says he fell on his face, shaking, trembling, and terrified. You could also think of the Hebrews at the base of Mount Sinai. Now when we think of the Ten Commandments being given... Where, was, where were they given, right? Moses went up on top of the mountain and was given the Ten Commandments and then brought them back down. But it didn't start out that way. When they first reached the base of Mount Sinai, the whole nation of Israel gathered at the base of the mountain. They did sacrifices and had ceremonies to purify themselves. And they were all expecting the presence of God to descend from the mountain and speak to them. And it did. There's a pretty good description of this moment Uh, given to us in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, and it describes the moment as a blazing fire. Uh, It describes it as darkness, gloom, and a storm, as the blast of a great trumpet and the sound of a voice calling out. And there's this great verse back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, when the people respond to the presence of God in their midst, and this is what they say. Don't let God speak to us, or we will die! which is why they send Moses to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and the law and then bring them back down. Don't let the presence of God be here or we will 
few short verses later, uh, after the Ten Commandments have been given and the golden calf is destroyed and all that is gone, Moses makes a request of God, and that is to see God's face. Right? I want to see your face. It's, it's a cry for the garden, for the thing that is missing, for the presence of God from Moses. God answers in the verse I had Bill read earlier, Exodus 33, 19 and 20. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he answered, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. When we come into the presence of God with sin in our hearts, it's not a a warm and fuzzy experience. It is terrifying. It is deadly. To come into the presence of God with sin in our lives means death and ruin and destruction. We can no more approach the throne of God with sin in our hearts than a, a vapor of water could approach the surface of the sun. It would be suicide. So here's where we've come. Even in our sin, God loves us and longs more than anything to bring us back into his presence the way he designed for us to live back in the Garden of Eden. But because there's sin in our hearts, he cannot bring us into his presence. We cannot come into his presence with unclean lips and unclean hands and unclean hearts. It would not be the joyous homecoming that is the promise of heaven. It would be a terror and a nightmare. We would be unmade in his presence. Because just like Adam and Eve, those of us with sin in our lives cannot live in the presence of God. So how do we move forward? How do we get back to paradise? The answer is simple, and maybe presenting it this simply is less helpful than it could be, but but I think for our purposes this morning, it is enough. If you cannot come into the presence of God with sin in your heart, what do you do? You get rid of the sin in your heart. I think that each one of us feels, at some point anyway, the tugging of the Spirit whispering to us on the deepest level that something in our lives, in our experience, in the world in which we live, is not right. That we were meant for something better. That this world, as we have experienced it, cannot be all that a good and gracious God has planned. What you're missing is the presence of God. You were made to live in the presence. You were built with a need for it, and your soul cannot be satisfied without it. So just to to kind of wrap all this up, here's the invitation for this morning. God loves you, personally, individually. God loves you you and wants to have a relationship with you but there's no place in that relationship for the sin that you carry with you it is a wall 
pain that turns God away, that separates you from His love, and that ruins your relationship. No one with sin in their lives can live in the presence of God. And so if sin is holding you back this morning, here's your chance. I think that a lot of times we carry things with us day to day, week to week, on in our life because we just don't have a good moment to stop, take a breath, look around, examine our hearts, and and say, this is my moment to give it to God. Well, this is your moment. (laughs) We're told in the Bible that where two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, that he is there also. He is here. This morning, this moment, right now, the presence of God is among us, and this is your chance to lay that sin at the foot of the cross, to turn over your burdens and ask for God's help, to get your heart right with God, to commit yourself to living in a way that builds a relationship rather than keeps you distant from God. And I I can't tell you what's in your heart. Only you can. If there's anger, selfishness, lust, pain, guilt. What's the wall of pain? What is it that separates you from God? Whatever it is, I want to encourage you this morning. Take a good, hard look. Take a deep breath. And then just ask God to forgive you, to help you, to move past whatever this is so that you can be in His presence. And you can do that without having to talk to anybody else. You can do it right in your seat. You can do it right now. You don't even have to listen to the rest of the stuff I'm saying. Or you can come forward as we sing our invitation hymn in just a moment and we will pray with you. But this is the message in a single sentence that I wanted to bring to you this morning. The message that I am convinced is true. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. I believe that we are sinners in the heart of a loving and merciful Father. And if we ask Him, He will be faithful to work to perfect us on the day of His return. Amen? We want to take a moment to thank all of you, our faithful listeners, for setting aside time each week for the Indian Run Christian Church podcast. You can find out more about the church by visiting our website at www.christforeastcanton.com. That's www.christforeastcanton, all one word, dot com. On behalf of Pastor Terry and all the folks at Indian Run Christian Church, I pray God's blessing on you and your family.